Amen. Luke chapter 10. Beginning in verse 25, found at the bottom of page 1612, if you're using the, the Pew Bible in front of you. This is God's holy word, which is given to his people for our good. So let us give our attention to its reading. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go. And do likewise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Amen. There was a story that caught my attention this past week. There was a a declaration put out by some advanced students, scholars, and teachers of the Bible. And one of the people involved said that this declaration was written because all of the people who were involved in writing it and signing it, quote, take the parable of the Good Samaritan to heart. I thought that was interesting, and I was thinking about the Good Samaritan this week, so I read on. And in this declaration, they were talking about the Jesus way, as they described it. The Jesus way. And what the Jesus way is, as I read on, is is that it opens up possibilities, uh, all kinds of possibilities for this world. I read, it said this, quote, We believe the Jesus way calls us to the possibility of living in a world where all can love and be loved and live into joy. This sounds sounds great, right? That that there's this possibility for uh, this world. 
But as I, as I read on and read through it, I found that there are many ways in which it, it contradicted with the teaching of Jesus. For instance, it talked about the perfect peace that can be attained uh, when we come together as people of all religions, for instance. That there, there's nothing keeping us apart from, from one another. And as I pondered this more, the possibilities of this world, and, and looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, I thought, but what is the occasion for Jesus to tell this parable? It's not so much that this expert in the law has a concern for uh, possibilities of this world. What does he ask Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The question of eternal life is what gives occasion for uh, this story. And what we see as we work through this passage, think about Jesus' teaching, is that really we learn not only perhaps about possibility, but impossibility. We learn something about impossibility. We learn about the impossibility of earning eternal life. That's one of the things that we learn from looking at this story carefully. This parable, of course, does have much to say about loving our neighbor. But first, in order to understand the correct way to approach that, we need to see the deeper meanings at work in Jesus' words and what he's teaching us about his kingdom. Let us then look at this passage together. And, and work through it. The, just by way of reminder, last week we remember that Jesus prayed to his father and he praised him for what? For revealing truth to little babies and from hiding that truth from the wise and understanding. Well, here in this passage we have an example of someone who would be considered wise and understanding. So we know that the way that Luke arranges his gospel, we would expect that he's going to give an example of exactly this how truth is misunderstood, the mis, uh, misunderstood truth of Jesus by someone who is wise and understanding. And so this expert in the law, this doctor, lawyer type uh, back in the day in Israel, stands up to test Jesus. And there's a negative connotation with this word test. It's the same word that uh, is used to describe what the, the devil does in tempting Jesus in the wilderness. In other words, this testing of Jesus is in some way Uh, So that this expert in the law can show that his expertise goes beyond that of Jesus. Or that Jesus is not exactly who he claims to to be. And so this question is put to Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And whatever we might say about this expert in the law, whatever we might say about him, it's at least respectable that he wants to speak about ultimate things. It's, it's true that in our culture, in our society, we, we talk about many things, and everybody has an opinion on a lot of things. One of the, the authors I like to read a lot, uh, G.K. Chesterton, talks about the fact that we can have an opinion on anything except everything. You know, we're, we're a society now where we push away those hard questions about the ultimate things, the eternal things. What do we believe about God and the world and ultimately, what is going to happen in eternity. When we push away these questions, we realize how foolish and absurd it is. If we don't ponder the ultimate meaning of life, we don't ponder uh, the purpose for which this world was created, uh, then we are engaging in foolishness. Many people in our society have been groomed to live without any notion of God, perhaps have been brought up to be able to withstand living with a guilty conscience. We know that 
God endows all people with a conscience. He writes his law on the hearts of all. People have been groomed to to live without a notion of God, to, to live perhaps with a guilty conscience. But even though many people can live with a guilty conscience, no one is prepared to die with one. And so we commend this expert in the law for wanting to think about these ultimate and eternal things. Indeed, that was something that people were perhaps more willing to do uh, at that time and should be something that we are more willing to do uh, in our time. But even though this is commendable, of course, he does not have the best of intentions. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus senses this, of course, that this man is testing him. And so he gives the spotlight back to him. Jesus puts a question to him. You tell me what the law of God says. How do you read it? This man is up to the challenge. This is uh, perhaps someone who knew the bulk of the law by heart. Could have, could have said a number of things. But he gives a beautiful answer by weaving together Leviticus chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, the law of God, the sum of the law, is to love God with all that you are and with all that you have. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus commends him. This is a good answer, he says. Uh, Do this and you will live. And Luke lets us into the mind of the teacher here. It says that he wanted to justify himself. Wanted to justify himself. And of course he he wouldn't have been able to give us the, the perfect Heidelberg Catechism answer on what justification is. But he's doing something similar when we think of justification. This is someone who is trying to show himself to be righteous in accord with the law of God. Notice that he did not ask Jesus at the start, what must I do to be saved? Right? That would have made the conversation much different. And we've seen conversations like that in the Gospel of Luke so far. We could think perhaps of Luke chapter 7 when uh, the woman comes to Jesus and she's, she's weeping and she, uh, she's broken down with humility and contrition. She's uh, wetting the feet of Jesus with her tears and with this perfume that she has. And remember what Jesus says to her. He says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Uh, Luke will go on to write in the book of Acts chapter 16. The Philippian jailer who is you know, floored by the action of Paul and Silas when uh, the, the gates of the jail open, but they remain in, inside. And the Philippian jailer cries out to them, what must I do to be saved? You see, that's, that's not the kind of conversation that's happening here with this expert in the law. In regards to wondering about eternal life, there are, hypothetically speaking, two roads Of course, the Bible teaches us that that one of those roads is completely futile and and impossible to fulfill for a a fallen world, for fallen human beings. But hypothetically, two ways, the way of doing and the way of mercy. What this teacher in the law is going to end up doing is, is showing us that the way of doing to obtain eternal life is ultimately futile. It's ultimately futile. We know that the fallen existence is littered with sin and imperfections and failures. Even people who aren't Christians will, will readily acknowledge this by, by saying things we've all heard, like no one is perfect and we all make mistakes. Everybody knows uh, that no one can attain uh, perfection. But having received a gold star for his initial answer, 
Then this teacher lawyer goes in for the, the, the bulk of his challenge. He, he goes in for uh, the kill. So he says to Jesus, Ah, but who is my neighbor? See, he's, he's looking for a loophole and he's trying to, to narrow down the definition of neighbor. Defending, depending on how you define neighbor, this commandment could seem a lot more or less difficult. If you look out into the world and there's only four or five people that you would define as neighbor, then maybe you would think to yourself, I, I think I could do pretty good with that commandment. Love my neighbor as myself. There's only, only a few of them, only a handful. I think I could do it. But if you have a broad definition of neighbor, then things get a lot more difficult. When I was growing up, I did something like this, and uh, I'm sure, I'm sure all, of, all of us who thought we were wise and cunning in our younger days did something similar. My mom would say, is your room clean? And I would say, define clean. And usually her glare would send me packing upstairs to make sure I got the job done the right way. See, in Israel, this was a real conversation. Who is my neighbor? Leviticus chapter 19 commands us to, commanded them to love their neighbor as themselves. Leviticus 19 also commanded them to love the sojourner. Love the sojourner. But then there was a category that, was, that created some confusion and discussion. The category of enemy. The category of enemy. See, if you, if you go to the Old Testament and, and say, what is, uh, how do we define the category of enemy or adversary relative to the nation of Israel? You'd find a number of things. The first would be that, in some sense, God commanded Israel to act justly, to act upright in their dealings with their enemies. They were not to steal for, from their enemies. They were not to break the law of God as they, uh, in all their dealings with their enemies. They were not also not to rejoice at their destruction. And yet, one of the clearest examples of enemies as it, related, as it relates to the kingdom of Israel were the people groups that were occupying the promised land as they went in to possess it, particularly in the book of Joshua. You go to the book of Joshua and God commands Israel to destroy their enemies. This was to be done in order that they might possess the land. This created difficulty for the way that Israel thought about all of these things, their enemies, namely. Often in their history, Israel was at war with their adversaries. They were at war with their enemies because they were one nation amidst all of the other nations. And so God never gives a, a command to hate your enemy. But by the time Jesus comes along, there was so much discussion around this subject that it probably had been said and was something that was said regularly, as Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? But God never gives that explicit command to hate your enemy. But just to illustrate the point, there's a book that was written in between the Old Testament being finished and Jesus coming and, and doing his ministry, the book of Sirach, that says this, No good ever comes to a person who gives comfort to the wicked. Now see, that's a misunderstanding of the word of God, isn't it? But it also shows us, it illustrates the point that as Israel thought of themselves as, as one nation amongst many, there were all kinds of different thoughts relative to this category of enemy. 
They were never going to be able to understand the fullest of Jesus' teaching of the kingdom so long as the kingdom of God was, was thought of in these earthly terms, one nation amongst many. And it shows us the need for the fullest revelation of God's kingdom, which is brought to us in Jesus. And so how does Jesus answer this man's question, who is my neighbor? He answers with this beautiful and insightful and challenging parable. And the way that he tells this parable shows that he's not going to give the expert the answer that he wants. He asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so he wants Jesus to give him a list of criteria to define his neighbor. He's looking out into the world and saying, you tell me which of these is my neighbor. But in this parable, Jesus does not give that list of criteria, does he? Rather, he forces this expert in the law to examine his own life as to whether or not he is a good neighbor. So he flips it around completely. And that's one of the, one of the things that makes uh, this story so challenging and insightful and beautiful. Take, for instance, the fact that the, the, the one who is beaten has all marks of identification taken from him, literally stripped off of him. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was notorious to be a dangerous road. And, and so people may have assumed that if he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, you can assume that he is an Israelite, but Jesus does not tell us that. Jesus does not give him a name. And there he lies at the beginning of the story on this road, taken uh, uh, all of his clothes, ripped off of him, all of his possessions taken from him. These would have been the ways that you identify someone in that time. What is he or she wearing? What does he or she possess? So this nameless and faceless one, lying here helpless, empty-handed, we don't know who he is. But Jesus tells us who it is that encounters him, right? Three characters, three characters. The first, of course, is a priest. A priest. They would have worn distinctive dress, easy to distinguish. They would have been known for their careful obedience to the law of God. Careful obedience to the law, but we've just been reminded of the summary of the law, right? Love God and love neighbor. So that's in, that's in our minds. And here is this priest known for careful obedience to the law. And what does he do? He crosses the road and he passes by on the other side. This expert in the law may have seen an opportunity here. We don't know this for sure, but uh, he, he may have seen an opportunity here to point out, ah, yes, but a, a priest uh, cannot come into contact with a dead body. And so perhaps this priest saw uh, this body off in the distance. He thought that the man was already dead. And so in order to maintain obedience to the law, he crosses the road and passes by on the other side. And that would have been the story that he would have told others and perhaps what he would have told himself. But it's for this reason that the second character is worth noting. A Levite, not a priest, a member of the tribe of Levi, but not of the line specifically of Aaron. So they were not priests as Aaron's family was, but they were extremely important to temple life. They were kind of like ushers, and, and a whole other things. They would guard the temple, they would sing and worship, they would read the law, 
They would even sometimes assist in sacrifice. And they, they were also seen as those who would carefully observe and obey the law. But for them, there would have not have been the same exact uh, regulations for clean and unclean as with the priest. But here, once again, cross the road, passing by on the other side. And so here with these two characters, we see uh, the foolishness of the man's question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because if you look out to the world and you have this list of criteria, well, my neighbor has to meet this and this and this list of criteria, we would go sometimes out of our way to not help people, which is exactly what happens here. The point that Jesus is making is, you don't know who this guy is. You're merely put face to face with his suffering. If you're worried about whether or not he is your neighbor, what you're going to do is fail to observe the law to love your neighbor. But then Jesus brings in this third character, who is a complete wild card. And the the technical way to describe what would go through the mind of an Israelite when you even brought up a Samaritan, would be this. Yuck. Yuck. Remember how eager James and John were just a couple of weeks ago to to call down lightning from heaven on the Samaritans. This comes from a long history, and, and perhaps the center of it would be right around the time of Nehemiah, when the Samaritans rejected the temple in Jerusalem. They went off, they built their own temple, and so the Jews looked upon them as worthless, They had impure worship that incorporated paganism, and they, of course, rejected the temple in Jerusalem. They were seen as a cult. And uh, in terms of ethnicity, it was not any better. They did not carefully preserve their Jewish bloodlines. They they would mix in with with Assyrian blood. And so just about in every way, uh, they were as awful as you can get from a Jewish perspective. Depending on how many people were listening to Jesus when he told this story, there probably would have been audible groans. Oh, a Samaritan. Oh, you've got to be kidding me, this kind of thing. But the Samaritan extends the nameless and faceless and helpless man the assistance that he needs. He takes from his own stock, his own possessions, to heal and to bandage the wounds. And by the way, it's probably the case here that since he's traveling with a donkey and with all kinds of possessions, that this man was probably a traveling merchant, which was another class of people which was generally despised. They were seen as, as swindlers, as dirty dealers. And so this man is a Samaritan and he is a traveling merchant. He's got probably uh, nothing going for him from a Jewish point of view, but he brings him to a nearby inn. He opens a tab for him. He says, whatever costs he incurs while he is here recovering, he tells the innkeeper, I will cover that cost on my return voyage. So that's the parable. Jesus turns to this expert in the law to see what he thinks. And in Jesus' question to him, we explicitly see what we've already mentioned, that he doesn't tell it to give him a list of criteria for neighbor. He turns it back inward. He says, which of these three was a neighbor to the one in need? The expert in the law looks the other way. Who, who out here is my neighbor? Who in the world is, is my neighbor? Jesus, you tell me. 
You tell me who my neighbor is. But Jesus' parable forces us to ask this. What kind of behavior is neighborly? Or how can I be a loving neighbor? But the enduring lesson of this parable goes even much deeper than that. Many non-Christians who would be concerned about this world being a better place, which is a, which is a wonderful concern. Christians would have the same noble concern, and they might point to the story as well, and they would say, see, see, this is what Jesus is all about. He's telling us to be a good Samaritan. But there are many ways in which this is a problem. You see, to be a Samaritan would be completely impossible to the mind of, of a Jewish person. Jesus himself tells us in the Gospels that the Samaritans had corrupt worship. And so Samaritans did not even fulfill the first part of the law. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. See, their worship was in fact incorrect in the way that they, have, they had re- uh, rejected the, t- the temple. And furthermore, no one can really live up to the standard that this Samaritan sets. To help everyone that you see, the nameless and the faceless people, knowing nothing about them, to give up everything that you have, to drop everything that you're doing, to help them completely? Yes, sure, there are certain points in our lives when we all hopefully do that. But to do that all of the time, perpetually, is anyone going to be able to reach this standard that the Good Samaritan sets? And remember the question which started all of this. What must I do to inherit eternal life. See, this, na- this expert in the law, once he properly defines the law of God, he sees its implications, and so he's now wanting to narrow down the definition of his neighbor and get it as, as, as narrow and as small of a circle as possible. But Jesus' parable turns it around and says, no, this is how you think about it. At all times, think about yourself. Are you being a loving neighbor to everyone Around you. And so Jesus sends him away. Do this and live. What's the feeling that you think he had? Don't you think he would have been filled with hopelessness? Don't you think he would have been filled with despair? I need to be like that guy? Most commentators say that it seems as though he's even unwilling to say Samaritan here. You know, the one who showed him mercy. And that, that, that could be true. I need to be like that guy? The Samaritan. And then not only that, I need to figure out the first part of the law as well. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then loving my neighbor like this Samaritan. See, we're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves to no end if we think that we can match the righteousness and and the neighborliness of this good Samaritan all of the time. Or that Jesus even thinks that it is possible for us to do What is the way that that human sinfulness is described in Scripture? Take, for instance, the the Apostle Paul. What does he say? No one is righteous, as he's quoting the Psalms, right? right, right? No one is righteous, no, not one. There's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks for God. There is no fear of God uh, before their eyes. And what what does the law do? The law shuts up every mouth, and the law holds everyone accountable to God. But that leads Paul somewhere else, doesn't it? It Leads him from the way of doing to the way of mercy, to the way of the gospel, the way of Jesus Christ. The way of the law, the way of doing, is nothing but ruin and condemnation. 
But then there is the way of mercy. And the way of mercy is rooted in the one who was as righteous as the Good Samaritan. He doesn't just become, Jesus isn't just a perfectly loving neighbor. He's the one who shows both bookends of the law perfectly. Loving God and loving his neighbor. It's true that in this story we see Jesus as the Good Samaritan. But go even beyond that. Jesus is not only the one who's most like the Good Samaritan. Jesus is also the one who is laying half dead on the street, beaten and torn and dehumanized unjustly. See, the the, the way of the gospel is that when we see the hopelessness of the law, the, the hopelessness of do this and you will live, do this and you will inherit eternal life, when we see the, the, the crushing burden of having to do that all of the time, perfectly, without fail, no matter what, giving up all that we are and all that we have, knowing that there will come a time when we fall short of that, when that happens, there is Jesus. What must we do to inherit eternal life? We must trust in that which has already been done for us by Jesus. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So is this parable merely to say that? Is there no, is there no ethical component to this parable? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. What Jesus says is, is absolutely applicable to us in our Christian life. But we must always understand that we cannot change the order for how we understand salvation. We cannot make the law into the gospel. We can't make salvation come by works. And we can't make the grace of God come to us after obedience. If we do, we'll end up with nothing but confusion. Can you imagine how how awful it would be to think that first you obey, and then if you pass a test, the grace of God comes to you. Can you imagine how crushing that would be? And so, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek mercy and grace. And then the Christian life is is one big, humongous, therefore. Therefore. That's what the scriptures show us again and again and again. One of my teachers uh, put it like this. The imperatives of the Christian living, which is just... The, the thinking about and expounding on the commandments and thinking about how we carry out the commandments of God, loving God and loving neighbor, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. The apostles never begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until they celebrate the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And so bring this back to Romans. There's no one who does good, the way of doing is futile. And, and here is the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul expounds that over many chapters. And then he gets to the third major section of Romans, five chapters long, talking about, therefore, this is specifically how you love. This is specifically how you do. And here we read in Romans chapter 13, which is a beautiful which is a beautiful passage for us to consider today. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In Christ, 
And because of Christ, we look around and we're not to ask, who is my neighbor? But who is my neighbor? No. Because of Christ, we become good neighbors. Through the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the ongoing process of forming us, we become good neighbors. As the Catechism says, what we make only what in our obedience? A small beginning. A small beginning. Always imperfect. Never by our obedience, never by the way that we love, earning our salvation. But we make a small beginning being the good neighbors that Jesus calls us to be. Walking by faith. Walking in the power of the Spirit. Trusting in the work of our crucified and risen Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, may uh, these, these words from your scriptures sink down into our hearts and be brought about into our lives as a crop of, of many works of grace. Uh, we, we thank you that we are your workmanship, that you are ever refining us and 